0: I'm glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, What a week. There's no other way to say it. This has been one of the most extraordinary weeks in American politics, in Georgia politics, for that matter, than I can recall. I'll be interested in hearing what our panelists have to say about that. So let me introduce them right away and let's get started. Patricia Murphy is with us. We have for a long time while you've been on the show. Uh, introduced you as being a columnist for Roll Call. They syndicate your column. Uh, you also write as a freelancer for Garden and Gun. But for the first time, we can now introduce you as the capital correspondent Yes. For, for Georgia Public Broadcasting.
1: Yes, it is so exciting. <laughs> Thank you so uh, much.
0: <laughs> Patricia's reporting appears on The Lawmakers every night at seven o'clock. And we are, feel like so lucky to have somebody with your understanding of politics uh, working with us. It's it's really great to have you part of the team.
1: Thank you so much. I mean, it has literally been a joy. I mean, uh, it's been a rather steep learning curve. You know, there's a lot happening at the Capitol you just don't know about. <laughs> but, you know, you and I had, just
0: just to elaborate on this, just for a moment. Yes. You and I had an interesting conversation about this the other day. Both of us have spent a lot of time covering the Wash the Hill in yes. Washington, covering you know the House and the Senate, going over to the White House and that sort. And at a certain point, living in that rarefied air, you can start to feel kind of like you're special somehow. <laughs> I but, thought I was special. But then, well, you are special. But <laughs> I'm we, just I thought I was special too. Kidding. But my point is, then you come down to the Georgia State Capitol, and I think we agree. All of a sudden, you're with people who really are working to make a difference, to come together. To pass laws that matter to the state, there's real uh, um, efforts to do things in a way that you don't see on the Hill anymore. Isn't that the way you're feeling at this I, point? It
1: is, and I, you know, I was—I'm the only person who hates leaving the U.S. Capitol. I loved it up there, but my family lives in Atlanta, so yeah. my husband and I came back to Atlanta, um, and. And the biggest surprise, and as I told you, it was like I was kind of a U.S. Congress snob. Right. And, and the biggest surprise going down to the Georgia Capitol for me and really getting into the details is it is so consequential yep. to people's lives, to yep. Georgians. These bills will become law in July, and it's going to change millions of people's yep. lives yep. for the for the better. Hopefully not for the worse, but it is—it's so immediate and it's so real. And compared to Congress, which is often sort of a a very elaborate dog and pony right. show. All
0: right. Well, thank you for saying it much better than I did. And I again, I'm glad that you're working. Well, thank you, with you very us. much. Um, Howard Franklin is also here today. Howard is a Democratic political consultant, does government affairs work. Uh, his company is Ohio River South. I uh, Tell our listeners where that name comes from.
2: Uh, you know, I get that question all the time, so I appreciate you giving it to me on air. Uh, the Ohio River was actually the natural line of demarcation. Between North and South, even predating the Mason Dixon line. And so w- while we are based in Atlanta, the capital of the South, we've actually done work in nine southeastern states from oh. DC down to Florida in the last three years. So we've been really focused on that region. And so we're thinking about the Ohio River and South.
0: Um, thank you for the explanation. Uh, I'm, I'm really, it's especially great to have you. And the man sitting next to you, Eric Tannenblatt, here together today, for one reason especially, you both have connections to people who are very much in the national headlines right now. In your case, Howard, you are running Michael Bloomberg's campaign in Georgia, correct? Correct.
2: Senior advisor for the state of Georgia.
0: Okay. And and – Eric Tannenblatt, who, of course, is a longtime Republican insider here in the state of Georgia and on the national level. We've said before your credentials, working with all of the Bush families from George H.W. on working with Paul Coverdale um, back in the days when Republicans were in the great minority downtown at the legislature. But you're also very close to Mitt Romney. And clearly he has been a major figure in the news today. So I'm glad we have both of you here because at some point in the show, I want to talk about both of the people who you're associated with. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay, but let's start with, I thought, a really remarkable moment. There were many things that we could single out, I think, about President Trump's what he called his victory celebration yesterday in the White House. Um, and there were people who have very strong feelings about just how he conducted himself. Maybe we'll talk a little about that. But he made comments that have a very direct relationship to the state of Georgia. He introduced both Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, thanking Leffler for her vote to acquit him in the Senate. Doug Collins for being a close friend who has worked with him on many things, um, including defending him on impeachment. And then he made some additional comments that we thought were pretty interesting. Here they are.
3: A young woman who I didn't know at all, but she's been so supportive, and I've had great support from other people in that state, and she's been so supportive, and she's been downright nasty and mean about the unfairness to the president. And Kelly Loeffler, I appreciate very much. Thank you. You saw it very early on. A man who has been a, an unbelievable friend of mine and spokesman and somebody that, that I really like. And I know, Kelly, you're going to end up liking him a lot. Something's going to happen that's going to be very good. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. But Doug Collins, where is he? Where is Doug? You have been so great. Thank you very much, Doug. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really amazing job.
0: So, uh, Patricia, number one, we should point out that that whole uh, uh, talk of the president was about singling out most of the Republicans in the room. So it wasn't as though well Leffler and Colin Scott. Special treatment, although they did to the extent that they're running against each other for the U.S. Senate.
1: I, I mean, I don't care if there were 10 million people yeah. in that room. That was crazy.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, what well, was so interesting, because you can see the wheels turning in Donald Trump's head and he's just making news out loud. You'd, I don't know that even many of his staff know exactly what he's talking about. Um, but I thought it was I think the responses to it actually have been the most interesting. Um, after the president. uh Praised both of them. There was a statement out of Collins' campaign that said, "Well, we believe that the president may be looking for a job that's more suitable <laughs> yeah. uh, for Kelly Loeffler." And I don't know if they have an inside scoop at all. I, I we do know that the White House chief of staff is coming open. I, I certainly don't know that she would be up for it. I don't know that. Co- I do think Collins would be very well qualified for that. Um, but it really does put on full display this rivalry that could It was literally in the room with the president who's, who's going to have the power to really influence that decision.
4: I, I, I wonder if it's actually the reverse, that they issued that statement because there was a lot of chatter that the president was going to try and resolve this by, by appointing Doug Collins to something in the Trump administration, yes. whether it's in the White House or an executive branch department. I think the most telling in his comments about Kelly is that since she has been appointed— uh, she has been nothing but a supporter of the president, and the president acknowledged
0: that. And Although I think
1: he that... pronounced her name wrong. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm he down. did. <laughs> he did call her Kelly Loeffler, which is something. You know what? The way things are going with the Republicans in the U.S. Senate, that's what she's going to start calling herself. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the first person whose name you know, he's. No, no he of course not. Of, right. course not. of course not. But Howard, I, you know. What's going on here?
2: I, I wish I had something to add to this, except I, I remember when uh, presidents would call out members of Congress for, you know, putting forward or passing legislation or calling attention to an important issue. In every case, when this guy takes the microphone, it's all about my friends, what they've done for me and how they've helped uh, advance and protect my interests. And, I, you know, that, that's obviously not going to change. This is three plus years in, but it's just it's stunning that. This is the central way that Donald Trump sees the Congress. That's incredible to me.
0: Um, I do want to say, Patricia pointed out what the Collins people put out afterwards. Maybe the president wants to find a job more suitable for Leffler. But here's what the uh, NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which backs Leffler, here's their quote. Imagine suggesting, it's a response to Collins, of course, imagine suggesting that one of the most successful business leaders in Georgia and sitting U.S. senator is, quote, less suited, unquote, for her job than an unaccomplished and entitled representative who has never won more than 200,000 votes with a straight face. This is really a nasty fight.
4: Yeah, I I don't like that. I just really, I, I, I think very highly of both Kelly and Doug. And I, don't think this is very constructive. and I, I hope something can be worked out because it, it's it, it's gonna get worse before it gets better.
0: Well, it got worse. Uh, yeah. The Carrie uh, Armstrong, a Republican from North Dakota, wrote on Twitter. Exactly, how many elections has she, Leffler, won? Unaccomplished and entitled—our adjectives usually associated with donor appointments, not impeachment floor managers. To be fair, I don't know her and have nothing against her, but the water, cool consul- water cooler consultants might want to sit this out. I, mean, I could go on. McLagan, uh, Collins guy, then responded to some of this. So,
1: well, it's just you know, to Eric's point, uh, it's it's so so damaging. It's so unnecessary. You can run against each other, and your camps can run against each other without taking such ugly personal attacks. And these are two otherwise really strong additions to the Republican Party. They don't need to um, eat each other alive in the process of going after this this job. There, there will be others. Um, there will be others in the but future. But
4: one one thing, though, with impeachment now behind the president, uh, clearly his comments at least implied that he's now paying attention to this. And you know, he and his team, you know, may look to try and sort this out. What that means, I, I don't know. The the challenge you have right now is you have two camps, a lot of consultants, a lot of consultants that are making a lot of money and they're feeding and fueling a lot of this. And I really think the sooner this dies down uh, the
0: better. Right, but So let's, is. Howard, let's just take the president's comments yesterday. And goodness knows there were a lot of things he said yesterday that I think a lot of people wish would just go away. But let's just take him at his word and saying, maybe we'll work something out between the two. He's a president, you know, if he were in the second year of his first term, first year, he might offer a cabinet position, one of the two of them. You mentioned chief of staff as a possibility, maybe for a Doug Collins. He's up for re-election himself in November which one of those two wants to give up a chance to win the U.S. Senate to be with a president who maybe has a year left in his tenure? I mean, I just don't. A, it seems uh, unlikely that, that oh, either it would take
2: a, a job. But I mean, the, I think the the alternative is mutually assured destruction. I, you know, I'm sure Raphael Warnock and others are, are thinking, please stay at each other's throats. This is absolutely <laughs> going to make this Senate seat much more competitive than it would have otherwise been in the jungle primary in November. You, and so I, I, I totally get your point. Why would to take an appointment from a guy who may not be in this office much longer, um, but I do think it's it's going to have to—he's right to try to present
0: a detente. I don't know that he— Eric, to you, you sort of uh, shook your head. Do you think that for 10 months of working in the White House— you would trade off the chance to be a United States Senator
4: Well that's if you conclude that it's only 10 months and well, these no, I'm two saying, no but well, these but two that's the risk right but but I I think both Kelly and Doug think the president okay. is going to get reelected yeah and you know are you going to tell the president if he offers you a job? No, I'm not going to take it because I don't think you're gonna win Well see and, and wait, one okay. last point yeah, too plus the president is very popular uh, among the Republican base. Yeah. And here in Georgia, especially among the Republican base, and, you know, this isn't the only election that is going to happen in Georgia uh, in, in November. I mean, we're going to have a governor's race. We're going to have a Senate race in another six years. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities for Republicans.
0: So, this. Oh, I don't want to, Patricia, I don't want to get too ahead of, uh, out front of my skis here.
1: Oh, just do but it. Just there go. is a way in which, <laughs> you know,
0: you could look at this as sort of a trap. I mean, if the president turns to either of them and says, I want you to be coming to my administration, if they say no, <laughs> it sort of undermines their chance to get the president's endorsement for a Senate bid. Now
1: would be a very good time to send a quiet message that you don't want to – you you, yeah. you can't turn them down publicly. Exactly. Um, I have to say, although one one of the two of them is going to ha- at some point will look at November and say, Ooh, this is you know it's a jungle primary. It's so unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're going to have to I think start looking at their own polling numbers and look at how this c- could game out.
0: Uh, the other thing I want to add to this is there is another uh, a skirmish taking place in all of this. Doug Collins was on Fox News the other morning. Uh, He was there to talk about the on the day that they were going to vote on the impeachment articles of impeachment. But he was also asked about the concerns that some people have raised that he is hurting Republicans by entering this jungle contest against Kelly Loeffler. That was the question. His response was, it was the governor of Georgia who chose to have a jungle election instead of May primaries. That's on him. So there's another feud taking place.
1: Well, it was also the governor of Georgia who didn't choose Doug Collins to appoint to that seat. Um, And I think, listen, Doug Collins has every right to be in this primary. Kelly Loeffler has every right to say yes. I will take that Senate appointment. That every that is otherwise a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, I do want to note it was a surprising level of statesman- statesmanship from Donald Trump. I've never seen him say, "Oh, I think we're going to work this out. I think you're both going to be happy with the result." What if he really solved this problem? I mean, he he actually could.
4: He could. He's yeah. the one person I think I think that could. And and to to your point about you know Doug's comments. Look the law is that if a senator retires the governor gets early the governor gets to appoint yeah the governor appointed the law is that we have a jungle primary unless you change it so right now we're we're following what is the is is the law let me and just say
2: this i mean this is a, a president who has not had a whole lot of regard for the law in the last 3 years from the white house but i just i think it's interesting we're saying that he could potentially solve this problem when he. you could also make the argument that he maybe he made this problem, right? That, uh, to Eric's point, this was the governor's decision to make, and Collins got the platform that he got. He got the social media support and, and riled up a ton of conservatives in large part because the president weighed in publicly and said, hey, this is the guy I want you to pick.
4: Right, but once the governor made the decision, the president has not weighed in. The president has been quiet. And if anything, he's yesterday's a a com- yesterday's comments, he was supportive of Kelly.
0: Well, I thought yesterday's comments made it quite clear that he's not prepared to endorse either of them at this point. He's waiting on both of them, right? Isn't that what you took from that? I mean, well,
4: Kelly's a sitting senator, and he was
0: complimenting the sitting senator. Well, he it, was thanking right. her for her support. All right. I don't know. I, I'm gonna. If you don't mind, I'm gonna move on because I think <laughs> we're reading, trying to read Trump's mind, and I really don't want to get into that territory. Uh, Eric, uh, but let me take one more step on the Leffler Collins uh, front. There, there's an interesting new line of attack being used against Doug Collins' um, Town Hall, which is a, a, a site for mostly conservative bloggers. Um, Jackie Cushman's a frequent blogger on uh, Town Hall. They posted a piece the other day, which seems to be opening an attack that we're going to see more of, which is that Doug Collins was soft on crime. Because he worked with Democrats to pass the new criminal justice reform legislation that President Trump signed into law. But they're attacking him for having worked with Democrats to bring that measure to the floor, to to fine-tune it, and to get it passed. So (laughs) it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, Collins being a middle-of-the-road accommodationist. Well, look, as long as the two of them are in this race
4: and, you know, people have— called it a civil war, you're going to have more of this coming out on both sides. Because you have a consultant class, and all due respect, Howard, that, you know, they're making money off of all of this stuff and they're out there, you know, supporting the candidate they're working well,
0: for. Well, let's point out, Patricia, that it is people like Eric Tannenblatt who are helping raise the money that is being paid <laughs> to the consultants. <laughs> I have nothing like to do with this fight, just to be I'm clear. I'm just watching. I'm, I'm just just watching. not taking money from Leffler or from Collins to be very
2: but, clear.
1: But also, uh, I, that attack in particular is honestly crazy yeah. this was an initiative of jared kushner's yeah. one of his top priorities. the criminal justice i'm sorry the criminal measure. justice excuse yeah. me the criminal no, justice right. reform measure he brokered this deal he looked for the democrats to yeah. come on board and there was a separate measure on on, on the move from democrats but <clears throat> they had to change that uh, because republicans got involved so i don't think you can attract criminal justice reform without also attacking jared kushner and the president in the process
0: all right so all this says to us is that we are going to have an exciting time on this show in the months ahead watching how not just the republican contest but the democratic contest that especially senate race number two also part of that jungle uh, election for democrats they'll all be on the same ballot together um, and then we'll watch the purdue race closely as well Let's move on. Uh, Before we go to a break, let's take a few minutes on this. Let's not worry about the break quite yet. Uh, Eric, this is a you have been close to Mitt Romney for a long time now. You were you were uh, in his corner when he ran for president in 2012. You've continued to have a close relationship with him. Um, We have video, don't we? Or we have uh, audio. Let's 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 listen to Romney uh, uh, on the floor
5: of the Senate. We're going to get to it in a second here. They're working on it. The allegations made in the articles of impeachment are very serious. As a senator juror, I swore an oath before God to exercise impartial justice. I am profoundly religious. My faith is at the heart of who I am. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. I knew from the outset that being tasked with judging the president, the leader of my own party, would be the most difficult decision I have ever faced. I was not wrong. Like each member of this deliberative body, I love our country. I believe that our Constitution was inspired by providence. I'm convinced that freedom itself is dependent on the strength and vitality of our national character, as it is with each senator My vote is an act of conviction. We've come to different conclusions, fellow senators, but I trust we have all followed the dictates of our conscience. So a few things about that, Eric Tannenblad.
0: Uh, Number one, Romney came in the closing of his remarks. He talked about the fact that all of them sitting in that chamber were mere footnotes in history, would be remembered as footnotes. But in fact, he did make history. He became the first uh, the first senator of the same party as a president to vote to convict on a charge of, uh, of uh, in this case, abuse of power, um, and and I was also taken by the fact that I don't think we've ever really seen, and perhaps you have, a Mitt Romney quite this emotional.
4: Uh, not I haven't seen quite that emotional, but I have seen similar in, in smaller. Um, settings look they, every time I watch that I just feel for him because he is deeply religious and he took an oath and you know he he said it a lot better than I can but I he has struggled with this and I have talked with members of his uh, senior staff and they said he sat through that impeachment hearing taking copious notes and he even said you didn't show the clip where he talked about John Bolton but when he, referred to why he wanted John Bolton, one of the things he said is he wanted John Bolton to say something that would give him some reasonable doubt. So this is a vi- this was a very difficult decision for him to make. And as he said it, it was a personal decision. He has to look at his kids and grandkids. And, you know, he did what he thought was the the right thing to do. And, you know, knowing him personally, I'm not going to criticize him for that. And you know there are a lot look I've gotten a lot of emails this week and from people that know my relationship with Mitt and his family and you know it it was actually 50-50 in terms I've had some that said oh he's a hero and glad he stood up for what he believed in and then I had a lot of people uh, especially active Republicans Mm -hmm. that you know view this as a team sport and how could he vote against the president and uh, you know, this was a this was a tough thing. I understand the passion on you, you know for Republicans, uh, and you know, but I also understand the the personal
0: uh, uh, aspects of it. Patricia, a couple of points to add to what Eric said. Number one, we learned subsequent to those remarks on the floor of the Senate that uh, Romney actually called the White House Counsel's office while the impeachment trial was underway and said to them, "Please." Give me some information. Help me understand your defense. He wasn't convinced clearly by the defense of the White House uh, lawyers in the trial. Help me understand where Bolton stands on all this. And according to the reports, the White House turned its back on him. Essentially, They, they decided not to be of any help to him. So apparently this was a decision of great thoughtfulness and conscience.
1: Well, you can't say that response was anything but sincere. Yeah. I mean, it was so clearly from the heart. This was not about politics for him. And as the man who was the nominee of his party for president to mm-hmm. to go against his fellow senators of that party who all supported him in that run, there are so many relationships in the Senate that you don't think about. Those are his friends that he is saying, I disagree with you, and I think this is just wrong. And that makes them all— Kind of look like, you know, maybe they're not being sincere. He also appears to be one of the very few senators who went in there with an open mind, seeking out information. Please help me know that what I'm about to do, that there's some reason I shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think re- many Republicans, including Kelly Leffler, frankly, said, this is a sham. I- I'm, you know, this is over before it started. It shouldn't even start. Democrats have indeed been calling for his impeachment since before they were elected yeah. and before he was elected um, for the president, and which is unfair to him. Um, but So I give Mitt Romney all the credit in the world, not for, for what he did, but for the way he did it.
0: You know, uh, Howard, I, I made note of that line. Uh, I made this—this this is, for me, a vote of conscience. I trust that my fellow senators made the decision the same way. Uh, he knows they didn't, uh, or he would—you know, we've heard a lot of comments from— People who say if they'd had a private vote, a secret vote on this, there would have been more votes against the president. So I think it's fair enough to say that Senator Romney, in a very subtle way, was calling out his colleagues. Not
2: only uh, calling his colleagues out, but also setting himself apart. I think Patricia's right. He... Had been the standard bearer for the party in 2012. You know, he'd risen to some heights that maybe uh, that he had seen for himself for a long time in his political and his business career. And now that he's gotten a second bite of the apple, I, you know, I think he's a bit chastened by having you know, maybe r- lost the president again, the run for president against uh, President Obama in 2012. And I think I, I would take him as everyone has said here around the panel. At his word for what he said. But I also think the experiences that he's brought, having been an executive, now being a senator from another state, I, I, think, I, I think what he said also reflects the learnings and, and where he wants to be placed uh, in the annals of history.
0: Is this a hard place for you to be? I mean, we've now seen Republicans in the state. There's an article today in the, uh, in the AJC Political Insider blog uh, talking about what you said, that there are a number of Republicans in the state, leaders who gave money to Romney's uh, presidential campaign, who've been big supporters of his, who are now really speaking out very harshly about him. David Perdue has uh, been fairly critic has been critical in a surprising way, I thought, of, um, of his colleague, uh, Mitt Romney, Mike Lee yesterday at the White House, Trump talked about Mike Lee, how 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 um, Romney's uh, uh, approval numbers are plummeting. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. And Mike Lee stood up and kind of che- cheered that on, clapped about that. This is a tough place for a Republican for like you to be, I would think, right now.
4: Well, and, and you know, as I said, I've received a lot of yeah. emails from people that fall on both sides people that I raised a lot of money from yeah. that yeah. Re- supported Mitt and it's split. I mean yeah. you have some people that truly think he demonstrated and showed courage and then you have people that think he was a traitor and you know it's unfortunate the one the one other point I wanted to make too and and uh, this is something that I, I think I, I know you know Bill but um, one of the biggest influences in Mitt Romney's life was his father. Mm-hmm. And he, his father, he he carries his father's memory. George Romney. When, you know, when the, he would debate in the presidential election, yeah. he used to put Dad on a card yeah. on the podium, <laughs> and he he has said that publicly. And his dad did something similar. It wasn't an impeachment trial, but uh, his dad went against the party uh, on civil rights. Yeah. And and you know, Mitt was raised that you know you have to do what you think is right. And knowing Mitt. Knowing his family, you know, I, I, you know, understand why he did what he felt like he needed to do.
0: It was quite a display. Of course, all, all, all due praise to Mitt Romney. And and we're going to take a break in a second. But to close out this segment, if there's one guy in the United States Senate who can afford to be outspoken on something like this, it's Mitt Romney. I mean, he's had a phenomenal career as a businessman, as a political leader, governor of Massachusetts. He's not up for reelection until 2024. And so one of the things it seems to me that this said is if you take away the fear that some people feel uh, President Trump has put many Republicans under by by threatening their sense that it, they'll that he'll start tweeting against them and that sort of thing. He's tweeting against Romney, but if anybody can take it, it's Mitt Romney.
1: Well, well, sure. Uh, you know, listen. <laughs> I think. Uh, A lot of Republicans sincerely do support Donald Trump and think he's getting framed. It's a sham. It's all wrong. Absolutely. Um, But Mitt Romney doesn't have to worry about donors, doesn't have to worry about getting reelected. And you have to we have to ask ourselves as American as Americans, although I think few will, what kind of people and what kind of process have we put in place that these senators cannot vote they want to vote, wait, vote the way they want to because they were afraid of X, Y and Z. Yeah. Um, and if if I hadn't heard so many Republican senators say one thing and do another about Donald Trump, um, I wouldn't really feel that way. I,
0: right.
2: I, you know, I'll just say to, you that, the point, last word. to that point, uh, these are United States senators at six-year terms. I mean, I, I think in in Mitt's case, I think it is important to note that he's not up for re-election for a while now. I certainly I appreciate what uh, Patricia said, and I think that it is doubly or not triply true for members of the House who are constantly running for re-election, constantly raising money, but for a United States senator, that August body you know the deliberative body that takes on these very, very um intellectual and, and, and integrity-based decisions. I, I I'm surprised that I hadn't seen more. And I think there were rumblings of other senators initially, you know, calling for witnesses, et cetera. But I, I I'm a little surprised and disappointed we didn't see more of that.
0: I do have to get to a break, but Patricia, before I do, one a really quick note, there were some other real profiles encouraged in, in that vote the other day. Um Joe Manchin Senator from a state that elected Donald Trump by like forty points. Doug Jones, probably the single most vulnerable senator, Democrat in Alabama, it up for reelection this year, and Kristen Cinema in Arizona. All three of them face really strong opposition in states that are definitely red states, and all three voted to convict.
1: They did. And I have to say, I was more surprised by the uh, Democrats who stayed uh, with the Democratic caucus than the than the Republican yep. who left his caucus. Because those senators, um, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Were they voting their conscience or were they representing their constituents? Yep. Those are three states, with the exception of Arizona. I don't know about that. Yep. Um, those constituents are adamantly against impeaching this president. So, and they, they, I think, are representing those views and... Um, I'm sorry, they are not representing those views. Excuse no, they're me, um, and their so their they're going to go home and really face those voters.
0: And you were on the show the day that Doug Jones came in. I think it did a show with us, and uh, we all found him to be a remarkably uh, warm, smart uh, guy who very well might take a stand like this. You know, it was fascinating to see it. So whether you believe impeach, they should have convicted or not convicted that was those were strong decisions by by those three too so all right let's do this let's get a break out of the way right now and come back and talk about a lot more on political rewind Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy is with us, Howard Franklin, Eric Tannenblatt. By the way, I should have said it at the top of the show, Jim Galloway, who's usually here on Fridays, is not here for the nicest reason you can imagine. His daughter is a teacher— and Jim is talking to her class. I just sent him a note a minute ago saying, I don't know what grade she teaches, but can't you just imagine Galloway in front of a group of kids talking politics? He's so – he's got such an avuncular way about him anyway, Patricia. It works, you know. Oh, I'd
1: be glad I didn't cut school that day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, she, uh, yeah. Tom Faust just said she he's a uh, – she is a high school teacher, so up in Cobb County. All right. All um, right. So I'm going to jump around a little bit here uh, because you're with us, Howard Franklin. Iowa is still a mess. I mean, the caucuses there, I think everyone would say, were a disaster. Democrats are hanging their heads, recognizing this is not the way you want to start uh, a year that you hope you can win the White House away from President Trump. We don't know the winner, really. The chairman of the DNC, for some reason, that makes – I don't know what sense it makes anyone wants to open it up and canvas again in the state. Um, So we think Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, one of them won. They certainly came close. Now the latest polling in New Hampshire, same thing. It has Buttigieg and uh, uh, Sanders way up there. Biden's dropped uh, considerably. Elizabeth Warren's not a big factor at this moment. We'll see what happens on Tuesday night. But I say all of this to say, welcome to Georgia, Michael Bloomberg, who you are working for. This scenario strikes me as one that you're the folks on your campaign are looking at and saying, boy, we really are going to have openings here.
2: Not only are we going to have openings, but we were planning for something like this. We didn't know it would have been Iowa. It might have been some other debacle. Iowa has certainly given us an opening and. Mike Bloomberg is prepared. I mean, uh, I signed on with the campaign at the top of the year. Since then, we've hired more than 50 organizers across the state. Uh, We have a headquarters in Atlanta, and we just opened this week with a bus tour on gun violence prevention, uh, new offices in Savannah and in Macon. And I can tell you, having driven down one of our uh, most prominent surrogates, uh, Hardy Davis, the the former state senator and now mayor of Augusta, uh, both of those were packed out. I mean, there are a ton of people uh, who have naturally and organically taken interest in this campaign before we've even started doing that real outreach where we're knocking on doors, making telephone calls, et cetera. But the campaign is moving really quickly. We had uh, former Miami Mayor Manny Diaz in town yesterday making a number of stops across the city. I got to, got to ride along with him for a while and talk to a lot of folks who are really interested in the campaign. And I think people are going to see a whole lot more. Especially with us being the first on the ground with a pretty big team. Why,
0: why Georgia, uh, Howard? He's not making, to the best of my knowledge, is he making a similar eff- or eff- similar effort in South Carolina, which votes right after North uh, uh, New Hampshire? So he's.
2: The campaign's made the decision to skip the first four states. And, uh, and uh, as much as it is, it is you know, uh, fortunate for our campaign with the debacle of what happened with Iowa, it's also an acknowledgment that the process thus far has really not been reflective of the
0: Democratic electorate. And but, the, but the South Carolina primary will be a much stronger reflection of the electorate. And
2: listen, we, we will have, folks, we're already, the, st- the campaign is already in 40 states, uh, and we're going to be in all 50, we're already in two territories. The, I think the math. And really the case that's been made is that Democrats have traditionally every four years put so much time, money and effort into a couple states that only really yield a few electoral votes. And really Super Tuesday is where we start to see some two thirds of the electorates actually become apportioned. And so just for the money, it makes more sense to focus where the other Democrats aren't yet. And Georgia's also one of those places.
0: So, Patricia, you've been an observer of presidential politics for quite a while now, the day after the Iowa caucus debacle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mayor bloomberg doubled his uh commitment to ad buys and to campaign staffing i don't know you know at a certain point it the numbers start to get pretty they're already incredibly staggering but how do you how do you as a journalist assess what you see bloomberg's opportunities really are well i
1: was a strong skeptic of the Bloomberg for president campaign about four months ago. Yeah, you
0: actually said that on the show one yes, day, which is why I'm why turning I to it, you. Yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> because um, it just seemed so preposterous. But uh, this is a time in history that is so unpredictable, very unpredictable things happen. And the Democratic Party has really not risen to the opportunity here, that they should be able to just walk through an open door. There are enough moderate Republicans and independent voters who just don't want to pull a lever for Donald Trump again. And you could present a candidate as a Democrat who would get those votes. And it's not even a very high bar. You know, it's like, I promise I will not act like a crazy man. (laughs) But they're not even doing that. And also, I think Joe Biden's weakness in Iowa, there's something about knowing Joe Biden's going to do poorly in Iowa and then seeing his face way down below next to Amy Klobuchar's um, and wondering if Joe Biden has the stamina, has the money, has the ability to really start to win some elections here. And then if Bernie Sanders comes out as the nominee, I myself hear people anecdotally around me and then on the campaign trail, very worried. They're like. I can't vote for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Those people telling me, um, and there's a, those are, many of those are Democrats, so it's a big open door. So,
0: Eric, how do you, I mean, you know, we know we know that President Trump clearly has been afraid of Joe Biden. And, he, and Biden is down on his luck at this moment, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have an opportunity to rebound when the campaign turns south, so we'll have to watch how that develops. But it's always struck me that that Bloomberg is a guy who Trump really ought to worry about because even if Bloomberg doesn't win the nomination, he's promised to spend millions to attack the president all the way through election day.
4: Yeah, well, that's a good point. He has to win the nomination to, you know, Patricia's point about, you know, independents that, you know, don't like the president, that would support uh, uh, uh Michael Bloomberg, first he has to win the nomination. And I think that's where the challenge is. And you know right now if if you believe the polls that are coming out of New Hampshire, it doesn't look like Vice President Biden is going to come out in the top two. Now anything can change, but if he uh, doesn't come down out in the top two, I think he is really damaged and it's going to impact him in South Carolina. And I don't know what will happen in South Carolina. You know, prior to Iowa, uh, people were were sort of indicating that Pete Buttigieg uh, is having all of these problems with African-Americans and is going to do poorly in South Carolina. I've said before that you cannot underestimate the momentum coming out of these early contests. And you see it, uh, even though we don't know if it was Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg that, that won Iowa those are the two that everyone's talking about. And Pete Buttigieg has shot up in the polls in the last three days, 12 points in New Hampshire. If he wins New Hampshire, having one Iowa or possibly one Iowa, he's going to have a head of steam. And I don't know what that's going to mean, what it will mean in Nevada and then going into South Carolina. And so the Democratic Party is a grassroots party when they elect delegates to the convention michael bloomberg is running a very untraditional campaign and you know as chris christie said on uh this week with george stephanopoulos last weekend are the democrats going to nominate someone who endorsed george w bush when he ran for president or endorsed rudy giuliani when he ran for mayor and and so i think there's we're in unchartered territories here and and i think that there's a lot that's still
0: Uh, is going to unfold. And I don't know how this is all going to shake out. So, Howard, I want to bring this back just to thinking about how this all plays out here in Georgia. As we know, there are any number of high profile Democrats in the state, elected leaders and others who are, are supporting Joe Biden. Mayor Bottoms, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms got in on him, got into that uh, endorsement very early on. She's been a surrogate for him in several different states, including Iowa the week before the weekend before the caucuses. If, in fact, Biden does do what, what Eric's suggesting really start fading, What happens to your Democratic Party (laughs) friends who have been on the Biden train? That's a great question. I can answer it more specifically in a week or two.
2: But I'll tell you this, uh, even before Iowa and that debacle, My phone and the phones of a lot of our staff is already lighting up with folks saying we're really interested. We're seeing what's happening here. We're hearing in the national news about the commitments. Uh, Governor Rhode Island just endorsed uh, Mayor Bloomberg. We had a number of uh, other folks rolled out in the last couple weeks. We have probably a dozen high-profile elected officials on the same plateau as Mayor Bottoms, locked and loaded and preparing to do a rollout of endorsements as well. So I I think— whether or not the folks who made that early commitment to Biden go or stay or come with us, you will see a number of high-profile Democrats uh, from across the state stand up with Mayor Bloomberg. You'll see him back here in the state, uh, I believe, multiple times before our March 24th presidential primary.
0: Right. Uh, before we take a debate, one last note about all this. Patricia, uh, tonight uh, there's another Democratic uh, debate The last one before New Hampshire and Joe Biden actually has left the campaign trail. Here's the one of the greatest retail politicians in, in in elective office. You know, he's been a great. I covered Biden in his first presidential campaign and got to see the magic way in which he deals with people one on one. He's off the campaign trail for five days leading up to New Hampshire. And his campaign staff says it's because he's preparing for tonight's debate. So it's a big moment for Joe Biden tonight.
1: It's a very big moment for Joe Biden. Um, I think when you get, especially in New Hampshire, New Hampshire voters will be watching this debate 100%. We know that. I also think Joe Biden was probably raising some money while he was uh, taking time off of the trail, which is a problem that he's going to be running into coming up to these big ticket uh, states afterward. It's just make or break. If he doesn't do well in New Hampshire, South Carolina, he will do very well. But we how well do you have to do in South Carolina to erase those memories? And more than anything that I have heard from Democratic voters is they want to win. They almost don't care at a certain point who it is as long as they can beat Donald Trump with their nominee. If Joe Biden is not winning well, it, it hurts his electability argument quite a bit. Yeah, And there's, there's
4: a period of time between New Hampshire and South Carolina with Nevada yes. in there. Yeah. And if he does not come out in the top two, the narrative going into South Carolina is that this good. is a sinking ship.
0: Uh, all right. Um, Eric, I just as we take a break, have enough time just to say, yes, we remember that months and months ago you on this show said – Don't overlook Pete Buttigieg. He's a sleeper in this race. want to give you credit. Let's get to a break. We'll be back in a minute. (laughs) Welcome back to Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, Capitol correspondent for Georgia Public Broadcasting's show, The Lawmakers, which, by the way, celebrating its 50th anniversary, the longest-running television program in Georgia.
1: Program in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, Donna Lowry is the host. Yep. Um, it knows everybody down yeah. there. knows everybody knows everything. So when you're watching lawmakers, I mean, you are getting it. Yeah. You are getting the inside scoop. And it, it's a wonderful team down there. It's great to be a part seven of
0: seven o'clock on every night that the legislature is in session. All right. Uh, You witnessed this kind of remarkable standoff come to a head between especially Speaker Ralston, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, and the governor over budget priorities that became so significant that on Wednesday, Ralston gaveled them out of session. He took that house and said, and the Senate agreed, of course, we're going to take eight days off because this budget impasse is really, really significant I asked the other day – and you may have a better sense of this – do they – is it your sense they're really going to use this time to try to negotiate with the governor? Or is a lot of this posturing and, you know, using this time sort of to raise the stakes in terms of the confrontation?
1: My sense is that there is a genuine concern among legislators that they do not have the information they need from the agency heads – to make some of these decisions um, these were the, the budget one of are talking about two budgets, but the budget they're talking about is the current budget that they all voted for last session uh, with priorities that they all put in there last session. And so the governor's office, I think, has not made the case to them that there's a good enough reason to unwind those. And in in their opinion, to pay for priorities that the governor made promises about that they did not make promises about. Um, He has some items um, like the teacher pay raise that's very popular. Um, There is talk of of uh, an additional quarter percent tax cut, which is quite expensive. It's a small tax cut, but it is a large dollar amount that goes with it. Um, And we heard complaints uh, that the... The people who are gonna to need to vote on this don't know what these votes are gonna look like in their own districts. We're talking about county health departments. There were warnings um, from some within uh, the, the behavior, Department of Behavioral Health um, that it, it could increase suicides because uh, people with dr- in drug treatment centers won't get the treatment they need. So it's very, um, I think it's alarming warnings that they're hearing once they get the information they're looking for and so they're, they're holding committee hearings and subcommittee hearings with these agency heads to really ask questions in public Makes and sense. say, what okay. what does this all mean? What was
0: it like? What was the atmosphere down there like when this was really a surprise? No one yes. anticipated this.
1: I went, okay, I went in on Wednesday and got a cup of coffee, which is a huge mistake. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> because the world down there
1: exploded yeah. very quickly yeah. and they said, well, they may not be in session today. They may leave for uh, until, the, until the 18th. We're not sure. There are two Senate resolutions. We don't know exactly which one. We know something's happening. We can't tell you what's going to happen. Um, and the rumblings had started uh, the night before. Um, so very unexpected. These lawmakers don't want to be here longer than they have to well, because they want to go back to, you know, raising money, get on the campaign trail. But th- I think they all feel very concerned that that these budget cuts could affect people they see every day in their districts.
0: Yeah, my understanding is, uh, Eric, that Ralston uh, said to the House uh, as they were getting close to this, uh, if this feels like a Friday, that's because it is. We're not going to be here tomorrow.
4: <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think these are these are serious issues. But I also want to state that this is not unique. We have we have seen this in years past, the year that I was Sonny Perdue's chief of staff, we had a one point six five billion dollar hole in the budget. It was the longest legislative session. It extended into late April. And we had to deal with similar issues related to the budget and how we were going to raise revenue or deal with the shortfall. Um, And so there's a lot of inside baseball going on. But was it as
0: contentious in your day between your office, the governor's office, and the legislature not sharing information, not having transparency about it? Because that's one of the problems right now, right?
4: Well, and that that year you had uh, a Republican governor, a Democratic House. right. And a Republican right. Senate that had just right. fled.
0: You really earned your living that year. I did. It was like a dog year. <laughs> I'll just I'd love to
2: just add, I mean the cognitive dissonance here. We're we're talking about a governor who wants to both add big ticket items while also cutting Other important, you know, functions that agency heads that he helped appoint or that state lawmakers that are of his own party have said would be detrimental to the state. It's very difficult to understand. I think he didn't do himself uh, any favors when he he called agency heads to present to him and and his staff back in September, you know, what they needed and how they would get to this 4 percent cut the first year and the 6 percent cut in the following. And then also warned away state lawmakers and said, hey, I don't want you guys talking to the two. 236 duly elected legislators here. And so I, I just think that it's, it's obviously a strong play on behalf of the executive. And I, I think it's going to be tough without working together to find any sort of solution that keeps people happy or, or their state moving in the right direction.
4: And I also, this again, this is inside baseball, but the way the budget process works and having sat through it is that the agency heads all have budget hearings with the governor. Mm-hmm. In the fall, the governor then compiles his budget and then presents it to the legislature. So I think what happened, and, and look, a legislator has every right to get information, but my understanding is that the governor you know, was going through a process Process and the legislators were injecting themselves into that budget process early on.
1: Well, and um, Donna Lowry on lawmakers last night, and it'll be <laughs> on. Uh, it'll be online today for people to watch. She had Gary Black on, the um, agriculture commissioner, and he has been very vocal um, so far about cuts to food safety inspectors, mm-hmm. animal inspectors, things that you want inspected. You know, um, he he. Sound she said that last night. He sounded. Um, I wouldn't say op- more optimistic, but he did say, you know, I th- we're going we're gonna to work this out. We will work this out. So I think the, the sense on, uh, of, of doom on Wednesday is, is yielding to let's get down to business and make this happen. Well, I, I, I
4: assure you, knowing the governor, lieutenant governor, and the
0: speaker, this is all going to get resolved. Well, yeah. we, we, we shouldn't forget <laughs> that one of the resp- – I think you could actually call it a responsibility – of an agency head is to present the worst case scenario uh, in order to make sure that she or he gets the budget that they really want to get, I mean, it's, isn't that basically um, right?
4: Absolutely. And I sat through budget hearings where agency heads would cut things that pre- propose cuts that you know would never going to be included in the governor's budget yeah. because
0: they couldn't do those. All
1: right. What's well, harder to prevent a cut than to get a plus well, up? Well, that's later exa- on. all right.
0: We are. I'm. We are completely out of time. Uh, the nice thing is we'll get to watch you report on all this on uh, lawmakers uh, again next week. Uh, Patricia. Um, Howard Franklin and uh, Eric Tannenblatt, thank you so much for being here uh, for today's show. A couple of uh, 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 program notes. Number one, on Monday, we're going to talk about the budget in terms of concerns about cuts to health, uh, public health issues, that sort of thing. Ariel Hart Hart from the AJC will be here. Uh, Also, Washington Week uh, is on the air here on GPB-TV at 8 o'clock tonight and next Friday, Uh, Robert Costa, the Washington Post reporter who also hosts that show, is going to join us for Political Rewind. That's going to be a lot of fun. So in the meantime, everybody, have a great weekend. See you again Monday for Political Rewind.